My name's Laura Walter. I'm the Plant Materials Program Manager at the Tallgrass Prairie Center, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from X and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska Director of Science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson with Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritt. This is James Holtz, Joy Van Weingarten, Sam Sobel, Phil Ebert, Julie Meachin, and you are listening to the Prairie Farm, the Prairie Farm, Prairie Farm, Prairie Farm, Prairie Farm Podcast, Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. So people just heard your title, which seems like a long title for an intuitive practice farmer. Um, (laughs) What has been your worst failure on experiments of growing prairie Mm -hmm. that's a tough question because i've had so many (laughs) um although i prefer to think of we're in the same boat laura (laughs) as a temporary setbacks yeah yeah. just that temporary kind of has a different time frame when you're dealing with native plants yep you know set seed and and flower in um over the scale of a year or more um the worst failure yeah just one one way that didn't, didn't the light bulb didn't work um, well, you know what? Actually, I brought one. I have uh, a box with me that has um, a series of, uh, it has a set of props in it. Just that to, is true. Yeah, we yeah, have a box uh, here. I have, you know, limited memory. And so I have to have like physical objects that help to cue what I was hmm. uh, thinking about. So um, I have right here a, a very beautiful um, prairie flower that's blooming right now. Uh, with this incredible kind of lilac blue, um, you know, flower head structure with with uh, yellow centers. And um, uh, I'm, I'm sure that, Nicholas, you could probably tell me what this is. Just feeling the leaves will, will help. Is that smooth blue aster? Indeed, it is smooth okay. blue aster. Um, and uh, Which is less bushy than its aster mm-hmm. cousins. It's, yeah, it certainly it looks quite different to the um, New England aster that's also blooming right now, which is yeah. a deeper purple, usually sometimes pink. Mm-hmm. But it's got a similar color to blue sky or sky blue aster. Yeah, yeah, it it, it resembles sky blue aster a lot. Um, so you really have to look at the leaves to uh, to ID that, and it help it helps to feel the leaves mm-hmm. using those different senses to. But this looks like a perfectly that. great plant. It does not look like you did. There was no there was no failing involved in growing this plant. No, this uh, the thing is that this plant grew itself. Oh, so um, we have uh, out in our our um, seed production areas here at the TPC, we have some plots that are currently in production that are um, inspected and certified by the Iowa Crop Improvement Association, and we produce seed off of those that we release to native seed growers like yourselves. Yeah, um, and so I do have um, a plot right now of smooth blue aster. But it doesn't look like this. Really? Yeah. This was, this plant right here was growing in um, an area that used to have a plot of sky blue aster, but does no longer, um, that we've kind of allowed to turn into just sort of an old field. It's It's got a mingling and commingling of, yeah. of some of the species that used to be grown there and some that have blown in. And um, so right where this plant was growing, there's a bunch of... Um, uh, silphiums, there's like rosin weed growing mm. and uh, Indian grass. And there's a, you know, stuff that we don't really want in prairies, like like Kentucky bluegrass is forming, you know, just the the, the kind of the matrix or understory of this whole area. Hmm. Um, and so all this tall stuff, 
Kentucky bluegrass in the bottom, and we've got this beautiful sky blue aster. Smooth blue aster. Sorry. Thank you. That's <laughs> <laughs> See, even the names are confusing. Yeah. Okay. So Symphia trichum levy was what we have here. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I hate that name. I really liked it back when it was aster, but, you know, um, what, what, taxonomy moves on. Didn't they change blue sky aster's name to, like, like, uh, ooh, something like oh a- yeah it's oolentangiensis oh. but I, you can pronounce it however you want um yeah it used to be aster azurius i could say that pretty easily i could spell it easily i i've learned since then to do the other one but never mind but on um, all that you know water yep. under the bridge i can handle the taxonomic changes sort of but um this one the smooth blue aster i also have this plot and it looks nothing like this in the plot um, in our plot, hmm. the plants are about six inches tall. They've been oh, completely no. ravaged by rabbits. Oh. Um, and, you know, uh, I think last year, the year before, I put some chicken wire around them, kept the rabbits out, and, and the plants were pretty good. But nothing like the ones that are growing, you know, in the Kentucky blue, hmm. Indian grass, sylphium mixture that's out there. So in- why didn't they attack that plant? In the I grass. don't know. That's the thing. <laughs> so that's what 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 my failures remind me of is always to stay humble and to ask those questions. Like, why didn't the rabbits attack the the smooth blue aster? Where Tisk. I mean, you would think that rabbits would like the cover. Mm-hmm. Um, and the plants are fairly dense there, so it's not like they they lacked for availability of smooth blue aster to munch on. It's not like it wasn't a great buffet for them, but for some reason they didn't feed on it in in those areas. So um, they, now they were like, "Look at this field; it looks agriculturally useful and delicious." Yes, and uh, and yeah, they they were just like um, you know, it's Friday night and it's the all you can eat buffet, and they just kind of walk right along there and they 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 munch all of that that aster. So hmm. my 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 question is, you know, how do I make my plot more like the plants that grew themselves? So if you have the answer, please tell me. I do not. I do know with blue sky aster, sky blue aster, that uh, it is uh, ideal to mow it first um, early in the season. Mm-hmm. You still get all the flowers with half the uh, foliage, half the. Um, not chaff, uh, silage, half the silage. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's way easier to then dry and, and clean the seed. Wow. Uh, I don't know because you were talking about different heights because that one's like two and a half feet tall. And what mm-hmm. you're talking about is, you know, like a little dinky. But we like the little dinkies because they're a lot easier to <laughs> clean, a lot less. Um, well, I don't like them when yeah. they're like four inches tall. Yeah. And they only have like three heads on the plant. Yeah, no. I wouldn't mind, you know, kind of a bushier plant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of took a risk with not putting the chicken wire up this year, thinking that maybe they would recover and bush out later. But I think with the drought and everything, they've, yeah. they've struggled too with that. They didn't have as much reserve. Man, I saw uh, your Instagram, your social media is banger, by the way. Uh, I love it. <laughs> oh, and, thanks. Uh, you do. <laughs> thanks. We, I was watching something where you were saying it took two years of drought for it to kick in on some of these plants. But you were showing like really short Indian grass and something else. I can't remember, but there was like browning mm-hmm. on some leaves and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Is that just because prairie's more resilient or? I think so. And, and you know, um, we were seeing those effects of the drought um, out in um, the plantings that are right in front of our building that are, um, they were intentionally planted in really poor soil. It's uh, very heavy in clay. It's got some gravel mixed in. It was basically the fill dirt that they put in when they added this addition onto this building. 
Um, and that prairie has been remarkably resilient and resistant to um, invasion over time. So it's mm. a, quite a diverse little planting, and and uh, and we love it. And last year, the the compass plant, which is extraordinarily um, abundant, almost. I mean, can you have too much compass plant? Yeah. Possibly. Um, the, it was, you know, six, seven feet tall and flowering during last summer's drought, which was not mm-hmm. as um, not as severe. I mean, they're calling this extreme here. We're not quite in exceptional or the unmentionable drought levels mm. yet, but um, but we're in extreme drought. And on those clay soils, at least, we're seeing that the compass plant, um, even that, which is an you know, extre- extraordinarily hardy um plant uh, has uh, been kind of dwarfed and, uh, you know, we saw some leaf curling and and drying toward the end of the season. And in our warm season grass plots, um, I've just been debating whether I need to harvest them this fall. Um, There's uh, really kind of limited seed set on some of those. um, And uh, I'm wondering if it's going to be worth it to take the combine down there. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's something we talk about as well. There's always several fields where it's like, do we even bother? Mm -hmm. Do we even bother combining it? Do we even bother cleaning it? Mm -hmm. Like Illinois bundleflower. The field last year, this year is pretty good, but for whatever reason, last year it was terrible. And uh, we didn't even bother because we did the math and we said if we have, uh, because it it only costs like $8 a pound. Mm -hmm. So especially with... um, companies that can that are growing it nearby if they have it like allendan or shooting star mm-hmm. um if they've got it then we're like well then we feel comfortable with their iowa ecotype we feel good with their sources mm-hmm. um then it's like well we're not going to spend the money to put the combine out there if it's so thin and then clean it you know got yeah. so many man hours but yeah you have all those economic decisions decisions that you have to make and here you yeah. know i'm working in this uh, publicly funded program it's funded by the living roadway trust fund and so um the kind of calculus that i'm doing is related but not exactly the same mm-hmm. so um but i you know i really appreciate you mentioning that stuff because it really highlights some of the interconnections that there are within the native seed market in our region and you've got mm-hmm. multiple um, when you have multiple producers, you have a resiliency that um, that you don't have if, say, you had one dominant producer in yeah. an area. So you guys, um, you know, you can be producing um, a species. You can also purchase that from other producers yeah. depending on how yours is doing. Yeah. Um, it is – it's interesting because every year I will uh, – every year we, we try to get a feel for what everyone else is growing. Mm-hmm. Um not trying to be shady about it, but we're trying to make sure we're not colluding. You know, yeah. it's a very fine line between being like asking them for, hey, can I have a species? Let's see what you grow. And hey, what do you feel like growing? Because we'll grow whatever you don't feel like growing. That way, we, you know, because mm-hmm. then you're like, you rack up the price. And no, we don't want that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're kind of like, okay, are we all, we all grow. Okay, we're all growing. That's good. We like everyone. Okay. Oh, we're the only ones that have this one species. Great, you know, but you you can tell more from the feel and who's bidding on what than just straight up emailing, like having an email chain with five companies and being like, "All right, who's going to do what?" You know, because that's uh, illegal. (laughs) (laughs) You know, yeah. Yeah. So you get in a lot of trouble for that. But the native seed industry—it's interesting because it's not a billions and billions dollar industry. It's maybe. I mean, all across the United States, it's maybe a billion dollar, you mm-hmm. know, it's not huge. Um, 
and the really big companies in native seed are doing 30 50 million dollars a year which isn't you know a lot of money to me but it's not considered a, a huge industry um which one is nice because when i go to conferences i get to see all my friends yeah. but on on the other side it it i think indicates how the the small public interest growing but small public interest mm-hmm. in native seeds mm-hmm. um, because where the pu- where the public interest is there will always be people there making money so yeah. if there's not huge you know billions of dollar companies then they're probably not public interest so how do we make native seed as big as like professional sports or something well, okay, maybe that's <laughs> yeah, a yeah 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 <laughs> you know what's something really interesting mm. is there uh, was a study done on the correlation between Rome, their fall, and how much money they spent on entertainment. And hmm. we are on that graph somewhere. <laughs> we we look real similar to their trend. Um, um, you can come up with lots of interesting graphs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a doom and gloomist, but mm. I do. And I actually love sports. But sometimes mm. I am sad when I look at sports and and think like oh all of our money goes there you know so much we can just Um, siphon up a little bit of that Uh, but sports just seems to promote turf and not yeah 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 (laughs) or i mean or uh yeah synthetic or but um it was kind of interesting because they like major league football fields were all major league national (laughs) and the nfl (laughs) nfl pros were doing all like turf like synthetic turf and so all these high schoolers or all these high schools start pouring money into doing turf. Well, now there's like a big push to go back in the NFL. And all these high schools just spent a once in a 30-year, you know, amount of money on it. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, local government spending money on local football teams is another thing. I am here to talk about Prairie. Yes, right. Okay, okay. So, back so, to, see, that's why I brought my box. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your scatter, scatter box. This is my, yeah, this is to keep me thinking inside the box. Yeah. Right? Your your question was how do we get uh, people feeling like Prairie is as big as football and and uh, part of it is we have to convince people there is value past two things comfort and entertainment and the dollar hmm. because um, the Prairie does not represent comfort and by comfort I mean ease of living I don't right. mean like a comforting soul mm-hmm. uh, it. It doesn't have that much overlap with comfort and money. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't. And and there's so much value in Prairie. But uh, there's just... I'm, is that because there, there's a lot of stuff in, in life that is hard to pin a dollar amount to? I mean, uh, none of us could live without without clean air to breathe, clean water to drink. Absolutely. Um, soil that's still capable of, of producing food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we can't live without those things, and yet those are very difficult things to pin a price tag on. Yeah. Um, so yeah. is it is it something where, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking back to um, Elder Leopold. Yeah. And I'm not what a, a guy. I am not a Leopold scholar by any yeah, means. Yeah. And I, I was I was listening to a podcast recently, actually, um, from um, it's a podcast called Nature Revisited that I I, I love a lot, and they were interviewing someone from the Elder Leopold Foundation who was talking about how. How he came to this realization that to get con- uh, conservation happening on the land, that um, it took more than um, you know, like coercing people to do it, or 
incentivizing them to do it, although they probably didn't use that word back in the day. Um, but that he really, um, that's how he kind of uh, developed this idea, this alternative idea of the land ethic, which is really values-based. Hmm. So um, yeah. So it seems like, you know, if, if, if it's hard to pin a dollar amount on prairie and it's harder to relate it to our everyday yeah. comfort, then maybe it has to relate to something that's a deeper value. Absolutely. And, oh, who is it? Um, Twain, I think it's Twain, has a quote. I have very rarely ever met an insane person, but when large groups of people are together, mm-hmm. it seems to be a necessity. And not that I think, you know, totally agree with that, but they're... Get it, convincing a person and convincing a room of mm. an idea are two very different things and you use to, two totally different um, channels of communication to do that. If I want to convince you of, uh, of something has value, I would look you in the eye. I would express my value. I would make a very human moment. If I am trying to convince a room of uh, you can, and it has worked where you, like if I'm speaking in front of 200 people, mm-hmm. I would not necessarily use a very human moment. I would do that to draw people in, um, but actually facts then work. But the mm-hmm. crazy thing is when I give you emotion, you translate it personally, you translate it to facts. But when you give a room facts, they, for whatever reason, translate it to emotion. That's why you get a lot of like news using facts to um, like create like these strong emotions and it, so we'd have to be looking at changing the masses perspective on Prairie. Um, I hate the word convince, but Mm -hmm. teach, convince, educate them on the value of it, which is why we're here, why we're Mm -hmm. sitting in this room doing this podcast. Um, but it is difficult. And then the other thing is, is an experience, a a connection to it, like Mm -hmm. Tabitha's uh, her one thing, if she could change anything in the world, is that people would experience prairies, and they're connected to it. They're mm-hmm. more likely to take care of it, or at least less likely to get rid of it. Um, yeah. And yeah. but that—that's my only—that's my best guess. I think like Steve Rinella, he's with Meat Eater. Um, mm. Okay. He, I think he's doing really amazing things because he's connecting people to their food and to nature through mm-hmm. TV shows and podcasts. I do really appreciate what he's adding in terms of. Uh, people caring about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it yeah. yeah, I think there's there there are some some kind of unique um, voices who are, you know, on the same page um, about you know native plants and prairie and the value of that. And um, I think that you know Kyle Larberger with the Native Habitat yes! Project. Yes. Oh, I and, like him so much. Yeah, I like seeing um, you know just the um, the uh, the passion that he has for that. And it, it, it's not just you know passion is such an overused word, but he's he's actually doing the work in the field yeah. and um, and also kind of elevating some of the other people who are who are doing uh, great work yeah um, so um, you, know, you can I, like see how much it means to him yeah you know it like mm-hmm. seeds out of your screen when you're watching right. for anyone who doesn't know he's with Nat Native Habitat Project he's on uh, his big things are like uh, short reels on Instagram or TikTok but uh, he talks about prairie but he's in like Alabama yeah he's he's in those you know those southern um, prairies that are kind of overlooked and and, yeah. and now I mean we do have some uh, movement to, toward developing uh, native seed markets in yeah. that area and have you ever seen the one where he talks about how to uh, 
train your baby to be oh, yeah. fire ready. <laughs> Dude, that one kills me. That one kills me. Yeah, and, you know, and that shows that you know, one of the most memorable things you can do is is to engage people through um, through joy and through, oh, yeah. uh, through laughter and humor, um, which I struggle with because, uh, you know, anytime you talk to me, it's, it's going to get dark. And, and, and depressing. That is not true at all. <laughs> you, <laughs> you're like one of our favorites because oh you're gosh. so you're so cheerful and enjoyable. It's oh. contagious. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I I try. It's all it's all for show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, it's how I keep going because I see the darkness in the world, but I you know I I keep going because there are things like seeds. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know every seed, it's got that it it holds that story of its ancestors and how they adapted to this landscape and and it holds that potential for the yeah. future. So I mean. I mean, I, that's where I get I get really connected. So, oh, should I reach in my box again? You absolutely okay. should. All right. So, um, I've been talking about this little grass, and so you know. Uh, oh what yes. I'm gonna bring out. Okay. So, um, this little guy, if I can get it disconnected from one of my other objects in the box, um, this beautiful little grass. I mean, how would you describe what that looks like? Hmm. Sad. Sad. Like like. It's like hunched over. Okay. Okay. Like, uh, Drooping. Con- maybe? Yes. Yeah. Drooping, uh, dangling. Contemplative. Con- that plant oh, looks like it's contemplating something. It is, or maybe it's humble and it's yeah. And it's, um, uh, yeah. It's it's bowed its head. So yeah, it does have this kind of graceful arch to that that inflorescence. It's mm-hmm. it's fruiting structures, um, and then you've got to look at the little the little spikelets in there. They're so cute. Where? On the seeds? So, yeah. So um, where the, the seeds are on the plant, they're held in these little structures called spikelets. Oh, yeah. And you see how they're just, every part of it is just covered in the soft fuzz. Yeah. So it almost glows. Yeah, it's like a small shell that uh, hasn't shaved in weeks. It's definitely <laughs> on its no-shave November. It, yeah, it definitely is. It almost looks frosted if you get catch it in the light just right. Man, these mm-hmm. poor people who are listening who... who how, don't know what we're talking about. Do you want to give them the name? Oh, yes. Um, this one is called Kelm's Brome. That's a Kelm with a K. So it's not like keep Kelm and prairie on. It's um, hmm. um, Kelm's Brome or Prairie Brome. I really like the, the name Prairie Brome because this is um, the one of our native bromes that is most likely to be found in a prairie. And that's, um, it, you might find it also in some open woods or woodland edges, but, um, Oh, it so it handles prairie. shade well. Little bit. Okay. Um, there are other bromes like that you'll Silky find Silky Wild shade. Rye handles shade mm. or not that well? You know, I've seen it not far from where Silky Wild Rye grows, but mm. I think that's mostly because of encroachment of trees okay. into the areas where, where Calm's Brome grows. But a, a lot of times, the, the places where I've been able to find it are in um, rocky uh, hill prairies, a lot of those in uh, northeastern Iowa. Um, and sometimes hmm. on roadsides. Yeah. Um, so you said it's one of the native, it's one of the native grasses here to Iowa, and mm-hmm. it's one of the main ones in prairie. Uh, I, I wouldn't say one of the main ones in prairie. It is a, um, it is a, a prairie grass. It's not a woodland. Sorry, grass, uh, one of the main bromes mm-hmm. in prairie. What? Yeah. Um, how many bromes are native to Iowa? Like oh, hundreds or like a few? Like a handful. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, I. Oh man, I don't know if I can rattle them off. Um, there's hairy wood chess, and that grows. In, oh yeah, never in the heard woods. of that. Um, hairy wood chess. Hairy wood chess. Chess. Yeah, like the game chess. Huh. Um, uh, there is fringed brome, which tends to grow in wetlands. Um, 
uh, oh my gosh, Bromus latiglumus. I'm trying to think of what the common name of that one is. That's another one. So there's there's four of them right off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, but um, the one I decided to go after this one, and I've been collecting seed from it from Kelmsbrom because of a couple of things. And one of those is that um, I work with Justin Meissen, and you'll be you'll be interviewing him Yeah, today, we just I did. Think, or you did? Okay, yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so uh, Justin uh, and like uh, my other colleagues here is just, um, you know, it's just wonderful to work with this group of people where we have a lot of synergies. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that Justin does research, um, and he yeah. also does our, our kind of our restoration program. So he plants the plantings out at um, Irvine Prairie with help from other staff members. Um, but one of the things that he's done um, since he came on the staff here is he's created diverse mixes and planted them in demonstration plantings and research plots and out at Irvine Prairie. And he almost always includes a good component of the native cool season grasses of which mm. Calmsbrome is one. Wow. And um, so is this going to be a species similar to June grass in its nature? Yeah. Like what, what's something that in a way, com- we would commonly handle that yeah. would. Because it doesn't seem like it'd be like Virginia wild rye besides mm-hmm. the, the... Not quite as robust a grass. Yeah. I think, yeah, June grass is a pretty good analogy. Um, it's a larger grass than June grass. Okay. Um, and it flowers a bit later. Um, but it is kind of um, a tufty grass. The The foliage isn't terribly tall and it forms tufts. It doesn't spread rhizomatously. Mm. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's kind of funny if you're familiar with smooth brome, which is the, you know, the Eurasian native um, yeah. that was planted for, you know, I, I'm going to put improvement in finger quotes here, but for improvement of, of pastures. Yeah. Um, uh, it's not rhizomatous like that. It doesn't form a turf. Um, hmm. but it forms these little tufts. So it, I think June grass is a great analogy for it. Um, and, uh, what Justin has found is that in his planting since 2016, it always comes up. It establishes in, in, in plantings, wow. which is something that we think about when we're, we're considering adding kind of newer species to, to mixes is, yeah. are they going to come up? And then the other question is, are they going to persist? And we went out, um, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, uh, we went to uh, some prairie strips that he planted in 2016 when he was a new guy here on staff. Mm-hmm. And um, and we were finding Kelmsbrome all over the place. Wow. So it's not a dominant grass, but it is still a component of that plant community. Well, another thing is um, I've talked to a lot of uh, district conservationists, so the head of different counties for their NRCS program. And something we refer to as like a fill in the blank mm. um, uh, grass because big blue stem can grow right next to big blue stem, but you don't want it to because mm-hmm. nothing gets under or beside the you know if they start. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, but you definitely want big blue stem and Indian grass to switch grass, but then you for sure also want um, uh, little blue stem cytoscrama. And and but the problem with June grass is we it won't establish what uh, mm. we have to put it in at like six seeds a square foot for yep. it to establish mm-hmm. as if we had put another species in at like a seed and a half a square foot. Mm-hmm. So counties will be like, you're just doing all this June grass because you know it's cheaper. It's like no, because we're just we're just trying to get any June grass right. we find. If you put any less than four, you won't see any. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you talk to Justin about seeding rates for small seeded species? Y- yes, good. we did. And that was okay, first... good, because, you know, that's one of his things. That's one of I his talking points. I did not know that that seed size affected it. 
Mm. I didn't know that. And he was like, you probably already know this and said it. And I think I just nodded along just because I was <laughs> like, give, give, yeah. give, give me the information. This is amazing. <laughs> I told Justin, I was like, I'm a prairie person. And I don't think I've ever learned as much in an interview as when I oh. interviewed him. He just has information off the oh, wazoo. Yeah. I stand in his doorway and chat with him sometimes. Yeah. And I pick up so much stuff. And I, you know, I hold on to a few gems like, you really should pick Calm's Brome, Laura. I mean, he's been telling me this for, really? for several years. But um, uh, I, So when, can, when are we going to be able to get some from you? Well, I'm hoping. Um, I have now um, ac- accessions from or collections from six different locations. And I think I'm Are gonna, any in Iowa? All of them in Iowa. All in Iowa. So what, what Justin had told me about this is it comes up and it persists. But he the closest seed source he could get was northwestern Minnesota. Oh. Yeah. So that's like is it ecologically appropriate here? Well, I mean away. it comes up and it persists, right? But it's a long ways away. So um, he's been wanting to see uh, more local sources of it. So I'm going to plant um, a production row of it with those six collections that I have. And they're all Zone 1 or what? Are... They're, I'm, I think I might and For anyone it listening, in... Zone 1 is Northern, Zone 2 is Central Iowa, and Zone 3 is Southern Iowa. And then there's like, all, there's all yeah. sorts of zones because you have like United States zones. And anyway, yeah. I, but yeah, that's I, what we're referring to. Right. We're referring to the, the traditional Iowa ecotype project zones. Um, uh, depending on... Um, the actual distribution or range of, of a species that can be less easy to create those three zones. Mm-hmm. And this one, um, if you look at a distribution map, like you go to um, uh, the Bio- Biota of North America Project or BONAP, and you look at the distribution map for Prairie Brome or Bromus calmii, you'll see that it's primarily a northeastern Iowa range, although there oh. are some scattered counties and, and other parts of the state with um, with records of it, at least historical records of it. Whether those populations still exist or not is a question. Um, and so I, um, I, I mean, I, I chose this grass to, to bring today too because it just illustrates a lot of the ways that um, the work that I do meshes with the work that a lot of other people do. So there's mm-hmm. Justin who kind of gave me the idea. Um, and then about, oh, I don't know, six weeks ago, six, eight weeks ago, I reached out to um, – uh, John Pearson and Mark Lushke, uh, to the biologists at the DNR, okay. and asked them, do you know of any potential collection sites for these grasses? And I'm looking for other native bromes as well, but yeah. particularly this one. And John and Mark got back to me. Um, uh, Mark gave me specific like herbarium records. So herbarium, if, if you're not familiar with it, is like a library of plants where they have pressed plant specimens from you know, they could go way back to the history of, into history of an institution. And these are pressed and preserved and, and organized so that um, botanists and others can can use that as a resource for understanding the distributions of plants and their ecology. Yeah. So it's like a library. It's like a plants. library of okay. plants. And wow. so when you have a herbarium record, you have an actual physical evidence that that plant existed in that place at that time. Mm. And so Mark sent me um, herbarium records of Bromus calmii, um, at least the, the you know the information from those herbarium sheets that had been transcribed and was in a digital repository somewhere. Yeah. And so I followed up on some of those to find the specific collecting sites where I thought I'd be able to get to it and actually collect some seed. Uh, so that that partnership or collaboration with the DNR is super important. They I mean they have this this uh, knowledge that's uh, incredible. Yeah. Um, but then. 
Um, I also needed to reach out to people locally on the ground to find out about access to those sites, permissions to go in and collect things. Has um, this been the hardest? Do you have to do this with every single species? It's this complicated? Or has this been one of the harder ones to collect? This has been a little bit harder because I didn't know. Um, I knew of one of the sites where I'd actually seen it myself. But I didn't uh, just have like a laundry list of, of sites. Well, I'm going to go to this place and this place and this yeah. place because I've seen it there before. Um so this one was probably the most challenging, and it really showed me, you know, how deeply I rely on on these other people. Um, so um, it was the, kind of the next step was just talking to county conservation folks because a lot of times these remnant sites are managed by, um, I mean, either they're state DNR properties and they're managed by the DNR, or they are, you know, county conservation properties. Um, or they might be private or held in a, a land trust like INHF. And one of the sites I went to is an INHF site. Yeah. Um, but the county conservation people are super important because they're the kind of eyes and boots on the ground in um, you know, many of our remnants. Did they have the expertise to know what you were talking about? Um, it's, a, you know, it's a mixed bag. Some do, some don't. Um, yeah. They have different levels of expertise in different areas. So yeah. you know, some of them are you know, fantastic in wildlife management or, um, you know, um, you know, working with the public and public education and that sort of thing. And then others are just really, you know, getting into prairies and prairie management and restoration of prairies. Yeah, yeah, more and more. Yeah. But, I mean, still, even among the people that I know that love prairie and are incredible county, you know, supervisors Mm -hmm. or or, uh, wildlife managers, they do a great job. The percentage of even those people who would be most likely to know in the world what Calm's Brome is... (laughs) Good luck. Okay. You know that. So, yeah, I'm going to call out two of them. Okay. Yeah, because um, I uh, had had met a couple of them through the Iowa Prairie Network. So shout out to IPN. I know yeah. Tabitha Panis has been on here before. Oh yeah, it's we an like IPN. Amazing um, organization. Um, and uh, I met Tony Vorwald from Jackson County hmm. um, through that organization. Um, I had actually been to one of the sites that he manages, and I'd seen some of the work that he'd done um, by following along on the heels of Ray Hamilton, who's a very dedicated, uh, longtime IPN member and, and leader. Um, so I'd seen what Tony had been doing. He's been working in these um, hill prairies in Jackson County, clearing um, the encroaching brush and, and trees in areas that you basically have to hike in with your chainsaw to get to these spots. And I mean, and you're working, you know, above so bluffs over, you know, a stream and it's, it's beautiful landscape. Yeah. And and what, what he's been seeing and what he's enthusiastic about is that when you start opening up these areas, you start seeing species that you didn't know were there. And so mm. he's curious and he asks questions about it. And um, uh, one, one day this summer, he sent me a photo of his hand behind uh, a seed head of grass. And wow. he said, Laura, is this the one you're looking for? And I said, yes. That's so cool. Um, so, you know, here's that this little so Instagram cool. message. And um, and he collected um, seed of several plants that he found in one of these prairies wow. that he had personally released from shade. Uh, so he's, you know, he's seeing the resurgence of these prairie species there. And I am just... Released from shade. I've never heard that term before. Maybe I just made it up. I don't know. <laughs> um, but, you know, I just kind of get chills thinking yeah. about this, this young man who has, you know, taken on this, this, I mean, it's a job, right? But it's also, you know, he's developed, um, you know, such a skill level and a knowledge of this, this particular part of the land that he's bringing it back um yeah. and well and renewing it you know yeah. 
So I'm very, very grateful for that. He um, handed that seed off to me last Friday, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, and then there's also Kenny Slocum, another person who's very active in Iowa Prairie Network. He's in okay. Clayton County. Um, and he had a couple of sites where um, he thought he had prairie brome. And and it's really neat because you mentioned that it's these are not species that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first place we went, we found instead of prairie brome, we found um, one of the other species, the hairy woodchest or bromus pubescens. Oh, that's cool. And so I was super excited, got that collected. And then he said, now at this next site, which was Bloody Run. He said, at Bloody Run, I'm 99.9% sure that we have Calms Brome. And we got up there to this one hill prairie that he's been working on. And it was my student, Alex, who's like, is that it? And it was. Wow. And, and, and we found it. That so, is so cool. Yeah. So, that is so cool. Uh, we've got Clayton and Jackson County in the Did bag. Did Kent tell you he, think he, fa- he thinks he found some? Yeah. He showed me a picture. And was I'm, it? I'm not sure. Okay. I'm, it could be um, one of the other species. Um, yeah. I, I would suspect Bromus pubescens based on where you are Which one in is the that? state. That one is the hairy wood chest. Okay. But cool. I'm not sure. It could, uh, I, based on the picture, I couldn't, I couldn't distinguish mm. it. But I'd love to go down and see that. Are they going to let those bromes in CRP mixes? Why not? I don't know. I don't know. Like buffalo grass, they don't let in mm-hmm. in CRP mixes. So I didn't know if mm. there was. Well, I might have to talk to some people. I know. That's what <laughs> I, would, I, I, I I've made some recommendations. Well, like Matt Allen, the CRP manager in Iowa, incredible mm-hmm. guy, always open to feedback. Um, speaking of which. It depends on the, you know, I'm just, I just want to go back to that. Yeah, it's just, yeah. You know, it depends on the, you know, the, the range of the species and whether it would be ecologically appropriate yeah. in a particular mix. So I'm not going to second guess the yeah. the NRCS. I mean, they've got wonderful staff who are working on that. Well, they, yeah, they do a great job. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Western Yarrow, they mm-hmm. let in all of the state and it's basically only west of the Lus Hills. You don't see it on this side of the Lus Hills uh, on its native range, but now yeah. it's in all sorts of mixes. And I actually get questioned on it. So it's something that we'll put about a half a seed, a square foot on. Yeah. Um, but we, uh, all the time, DCs, you know, it, usually we have enough variety. They don't care. But sometimes they'll be like, hey, don't super like that. Especially when you start getting to our part, which is mm-hmm. uh, Eastern Central. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I so I'm okay with, I, I don't know. Me personally, I'm okay with pushing the boundaries of where Prairie is a little bit. You know, not like states and states away. I'm talking like mm-hmm. several counties from where it was maybe mm. found originally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also don't know, like with climate change, would there be a new boundary? Anyway? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really important question. And um, <clears throat> I think uh, one of the the talks that I saw at um, the North American Prairie Conference this year um, was one that that got me really to thinking about the, that influence of, of climate change and how we need to think about it. And that was... Um, uh, um, oh my gosh, I'm like having, having a moment where my brain is not processing, right? I needed to have written down this name. <laughs> Brian Wiltsey, I think is his name. Oh, he, yeah, he yeah. was here with yeah, us. Yeah, he was yeah. here, right? Yeah, yeah, I know, Brian. it's yep. like somebody I know, and I'm like, ah! Um, I, was, I was talking to him, and I was like pointing out things I knew about Prairie, and then I realized like, wait, I watched you speak at North American Prairie yeah. Conference, and then I felt so dumb. <laughs> like, do you remember to him. that talk in the paper that he was referring to, where he's looking at kind of like the the um, the uh, the environment of of the prairie, uh, the original prairies, and then kind of where we're putting prairies today, and all of the the changes that have occurred in that landscape. Mm-hmm. But you know, his his central um, 
And I hate to, you know, this is like, the, this is the dumbing down of that paper right here yeah, yeah. is uh, by, by me. Um, That's what uh, we do on this podcast. <laughs> That's all can I do. So is that, um, what we, what we need to do is diversity. We need to, um, to be planting diverse plantings yes. because yep. we don't have enough information yet to be able to really target specifically, well, we need to move this species this far north or this far east, depending on, you know, how our climate and, and our hydrology is changing. Um, yeah. we, we, we don't know enough to be able to make those specific prescriptions at this point. So yeah. let's keep the pieces. Let's have source identified seed where we know where that stuff came from, you know, yeah. Um, but let's, um, let's make sure that we're planting diversity. We're not just saying, okay, we know 10 things that work and we're going to plant them everywhere. It's, we've got to have that, that diversity on on multiple levels. You just want something that works everywhere. Well then just plant brome and dry and reeds canary and wet. Yeah. (laughs) How dare you curse on this podcast? (laughs) This is a family show. Everybody can't say the word reed canary on here. I know you had somebody come on who actually spoke up for it and I'm sorry. I I disagree. Yeah. So did we. Okay. Good. Yeah. No, no, I'm not going to diss anybody. Yeah. I know. I hope that 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 person changes their mind about it someday. But diversity. He, he he's new. He's new to prairie, and okay. I think since he has changed his mind, he has. Yeah, oh, yeah. Awesome. I think so. That's what we see. Um, there's always hope. Yeah, because right? his introduction to prairie was through hunting. Yeah, and as long as you're not hunting in the snow, you could see why for pheasant pheasant hunters would yeah. be like, oh, yeah, it's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. But I mean, as soon as it snows, it's like, oh, yeah. you know. But and then bobwhite hunters, they want that diversity. Yeah. Oh and, yeah. Yeah. We um. We have quail on our farm. Um, we'll be all the time inside Otsgrama. You'll hear them. Oh, and and occasionally we'll, because we go and we, uh, not hoe, we shovel out big blue stem out of those. Mm. So it's Grama fields. And, uh, you know, you'll just have a covey fly up mm. near you and get out of there. But what I was going to say is yeah. you actually said something that dad says, and I quote him all the time. He's got uh, not famous, but notorious to me uh, phrase. It'll fill in. And his whole point is, if you put enough correct diversity out there, Mother Nature will do her job and mm-hmm. it'll fill in. Right. And people, you know, people go to the point where they're like, well, on this hillside, I want these. And and they're like a prairie purist. Maybe they're, mm-hmm. they're trying to do their best. I think and, that's a great approach. If you yeah. can do it, do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, uh, usually there's a little bit of a recoil when we when we send them an estimate on that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, sticker and, shock. And then I just tell them like, hey, here's a 60 species divert like very diverse well diverse for mate a uh, reconstruction not for you know right. a uh, remnant but this is very diverse you've only got three acres let's just put these 60 species out there and they will fill in you know mm-hmm. including wet and dry and a little bit of shady and for the edges and stuff like that but mm-hmm. uh um i mean that's the approach we use on the roadside so you, you're, you'll talk yeah. with christine today too i think mm-hmm. right yeah 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 and and so those mixes are um well she's got a couple of different mixes and maybe she'll talk about those but but it, it's uh, an attempt to include enough diversity that you'll get establishment in 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 all of your 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 ditch, mm-hmm. and you know that a ditch is going to have some different microhabitats in it, and oh um, yeah, and yet uh, you know there's there's plants that are gonna gonna fill yeah. in. Man, <sighs> nothing makes us more angry than the ditches because uh-huh. they just get mowed. Why? Oh, I know. I mean, I get the shoulder. You yeah. want a couple feet on the shoulder? Right. It's a safety thing. I get mm-hmm. it. Um. I, I feel like the only reason most ditches get mowed these days is for the same reason people tilled in the 90s, because that's how we've always done it. It looks right. better. Yeah. So um, do you have a... Quote, unquote, looks better. Um, do you have a roadside manager in your county? In 
Marion, yes. You do? But okay. uh, I, I was thinking because Hoxie Native Seeds, I live in Marion. Hoxie Native Seeds is in Jasper. I don't think they do. Yeah, it'd be a good thing to talk to Christine about that because, yeah. um, you know, the, those roadside managers can help to, um, you know, increase the amount of native plantings that are there. Yeah. And, and uh, um, I, as we learned at the roadside conference, they do a lot of kind of interface with the public and yeah. and communicating with adjacent yeah, landowners yeah. about um, about prairies and or about native plants and native vegetation and the benefits that it provides. So maybe they help to, you know, hmm. shift that that thinking a little bit yeah not everything has to look like a golf course yeah yeah not everything has to look like a golf course you know i had very interesting talk with keith schilling the Mm -hmm. state geologist Mm -hmm. because he did a study on golf courses because there's that there's that common like well why do iowa farmers have to have all these regulations but golf courses don't and um their contribution is so small yeah well landmass yes you Mm -hmm. talk about landmass it's like so much smaller but he did a study and found that if all of Iowa was, or no, not all of it was the Raccoon River watershed. If the mm-hmm. Raccoon River watershed, if all the farmland was turned to golf courses mm-hmm. and golf courses were sprayed and had all the chemicals put yeah, on them accordingly, the yep, yeah. uh, there would still be ninety percent less nitrates because in the water. of the perennial roots in the ground, even though they're yeah. just shallow yep, yep. little Kentucky bluegrass roots. Yep. So, what could you also, as a comparison, have that entire watershed in a diverse prairie? Oh, I couldn't. Can you even imagine, imagine what that would be? Well, because Laura Jackson um, was telling me that uh, somebody did a modeling uh, exercise like that of uh, a major watershed, and she Iowa doesn't somewhere. have high hopes for prairies' effect on water, something like that. Or was she saying for how much we're willing to put in? There prairie? you go. I okay, think yeah, it's. Yeah. I think it's a matter of scale. Yeah. Uh huh. So yeah, Laura Jackson, I, I I feel like is like the ultimate realist. Like <laughs> yes. she's like very. This she's, is how the world works, and we're just trying to navigate through it. And uh, she is she is strongly knitted into the the physical world of actuality. Yeah, well, yeah, because she's <laughs> like the spear point of Tallgrass Prairie Center, and probably takes all the heat as it's trying to pierce its way into people's hearts, convincing us that prairie is worthwhile. You yeah, know, takes yeah. the the blunt. The brunt. Well, she's, um, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll let her speak for herself. But yeah, she's, when I talk about the synergies that happen here, I think um, a lot of that happens because of, um, you know, both our, you know, our leadership and as, as well as how, you know, we've come together as as a staff around yeah. um, our central values. But yeah, um, she does I'll, a great job. I, I, I want to finish up. I have I have a little story to yeah, tell yeah, yeah. this. I, I can't, I'm not finishing up yet. I still have how many things in my box? I don't know. How You're halfway through your time. Maybe a little over. No way. Okay, so Kelms Brome. Yeah. Going back to my sweet little brome grass here. Um, the uh, one my favorite seed collecting expedition ever. Okay. Was about a week and a half ago. Wow, very I, recent. It was very recent. I don't think there will ever be one like this again. Um, I had talked to Josh Brandt in Saragota County about getting to um, a site that Mark Lushke, DNR, mm-hmm. had told me about. It's in a state preserve that's called Claybanks Forest State Preserve. Okay. Um, and I thought, oh, great, it's in a state preserve. I know I can get you know permission to go collect there. Um, but I was talking to Josh, and he said, "Well, this is it's. There's three separate units within the Claybanks Forest, and one of them is not accessible by land because there's private property in between the different units, and the the landowner's not real um, happy with people crossing over. And I tell you, when we got there, 
my uh, my student and I, Alex, um, uh, I've never seen so many no trespassing signs in my life as walking along the edge of, you know, you know on the public side, of course, uh, of Claybanks Forest. Um, so what we found is we had to bushwhack because a lot of the state preserves don't have trails. It's just, you know, kind of a hunting yeah. area. Um, we uh, bushwhacked down to the river, carrying our waders with us and our collecting supplies and everything. Oh, I think I saw a short video. You did? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I threw it on my Instagram. Yeah. I don't have a tall grassberry center Instagram. I just have my own one. But anyway, um, so I threw my, uh, we threw our waders over our shoulders, bushwhacked through all the stickers and everything. That's crazy. Got down. We had to scramble down like there was a muddy bluff. Um, and Alex is a bit of a climber. So he went down before me and he's like, yeah, Laura, I think you can make it down this, you know, and I'm, I'm, just full disclosure, I'm in my 50s, right? So <laughs> I could be a grandma at this point. Yeah. Um, but I'm scrambling down this slope. We, I, didn't, I didn't have to do it on my butt. But um, we get down to the river. We put on our waders. And the river's pretty low this year. So um, Josh from Gordo had told us that we'd probably be able to wade it. So uh, we were able to. But we, it was like hip high or something still, it right? Was, it was, it was hip tall. high in places, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, mostly knee, ankle to knee de- depth, okay. but, but there were a couple of spots. Um, and um, But we, we found the site um, and wow. managed to scramble up, change back into our hiking boots. And then Alex had to go up this bluff that was like highly eroded shale, limestone oh. stuff. And he just dashes up there like a mountain goat, right? And I'm thinking, yeah. okay, now he's like, yeah, you can do this, Laura. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> my knees. So, um, uh, but <laughs> I, I made it up. And then um, we're skunking around her along the top of this bluff because that's where the the um, the herbarium record that Mark had, had sent us, that's where it had been from. And... Um, and pretty soon I hear this, this, this yell, like a yelp, like, Laura, Laura, I found it. And here's Alex. And I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. And, and my voice is not the same range because yeah, yeah. he's a bass. He sings in the glee club, right? <laughs> um, so Laura, Laura, I found it. Um, uh, and here he is great. like perched well up on the cliff, um, you know, smile like ear to ear. And he's found this little tiny grass. I mean, how many times do you run into a 22 year old guy who's just absolutely losing his stuff yeah, yeah. over finding a plant. Yeah. I mean, it was the best thing ever. And so then we started finding it all over the place. Um, that was Calms? That's Calms Brome. So we collected it from Cerro Gordo County, which is the furthest west that we found it, which mm. I, I was really glad to get that because what we're looking for in finding these different collections is that, um, you know, we have... Our prairies are very fragmented. They're very small. Those original mm-hmm. prairies that run plowed, they're, they're kind of scattered on the landscape. We want to get genetic material from multiple remnant prairies, yeah, um, just to maximize the gene pool for yeah. the seed that we end up producing and, and and you know providing for you guys. Okay, I got a question on that front. Yes, Gen- genetic pool. You guys want a genetic pool, so you guys uh, kind of basically carry the Iowa Ecotype Project or mm-hmm. um, lead the way for us producers that then end up trying to make mm-hmm. it in mass. Though, uh, yeah, yeah. Producers can also um, obtain collections from remnant prairies, yep. document those, certify those through Iowa Crop Improvement. But those are different, right? Mm-hmm. They're yellow taggable, but yep. they're not technically Iowa ecotype They're project. not considered Iowa ecotype project yep. zones. With, but for the most, like for the, except for you guys' bid for the roadside program, which scale your Iowa ecotype mm-hmm. a little bit better, for the most part, they're, they're equal in market value in terms of Iowa ecotype for right. other various projects. Right. Um, and we have a lot of that ourselves. Mm-hmm. We, you know, got for our, from our own remnant and things of the sort, but um, 
Oh no! Where was I going with this? Oh, you guys uh, did the the Iowa Equitech <laughs> project. Need a box. I know, I know. <laughs> well, normally I type things out while Kent's talking that I'm thinking oh, about, and then I bring them up. And but my, today, you're my you're fearless your partner feared that we would lose our switchgrass. So, yeah. um, but you guys have really spearheaded that. And oh, genetic, genetic. Yeah, there we are. <laughs> you guys want Iowa seed to kind of be used Iowa Ecotype. We agree with that. But you get gene pools from different places in Iowa. What is wrong with, and I have an idea, but I'd like someone who knows better to answer this. What is wrong with, uh, let's use um, Echinacea purpurea. Mm -hmm. Why can't we get Echinacea purpurea from Missouri, Minnesota, and Iowa, put all of the gene pool together so we have enough genetic diversity, and then put those plantings everywhere? Mm-hmm. And instead of just getting several different spots within a smaller location like Iowa, it's it's a it's a good question, and and you know this is one of those cases where um, there's not like a line on a map that says don't move this farther. I mean, there are people yeah. who have different um, uh, levels of comfort with moving plant material um, around for uh, reconstruction. Um, and so different organizations, um, have come up and agencies have come up with different boundaries for how far they will, they will move plant material. Mm. Some people are very strict and they'll just move it within a county. Um, uh, but you're positing this, this kind of a thought experiment. Why not just pool everything from across Mm. the range of a, of a plant, um, and then just plant all that everywhere. And I think there, um, you could get to the point where you're um, bringing together plants that have um, adapted to very different areas. Those could vary in their climate, their soils, um, particularly um, really biologically relevant climatic variables like you know how long is your growing season, when it, you know is your yeah. expected frost, when are your expected frost dates, that kind of thing. Um, and then th- those are also particularly relevant because they affect the behaviors of the organisms that the plants interact with. Like but if you mixed them all together, wouldn't they be able to handle both? Um, wouldn't not you get like necessarily. This super plant? There's, um, you, you're going to get into the weeds here with um, a little bit of, of theory. So um, you, you're saying, okay, we need to mix stuff together because it'll make it stronger. And there is that idea that if you bring multiple genotypes together um, from um, maybe di- some different areas that you can correct for the problems of inbreeding that would happen in small yeah. populations. And inbreeding is an issue, especially with how be. few growers there are on some species. I mean, there's some species where there's like three growers in the United States for that species. Right. And, and there we can start talking about what happens to plants once they're in cultivation. And that's another story. So, um, but when, when you're talking about moving stuff around on the landscape from different sources, yeah. um, uh, there is the, the risk that uh, some of your, your genotypes are just not going to be well adapted for a site. Mm. Um, yeah. uh, and then that by bringing those together, that you're going to have a less functional population over overall, um, that you're not going to have as good of a match with your, um, not just your, your climate, but with also the biological, um, entities that, 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 uh, have relationships with those plants, like the pollinators and the fungi and, and and Hmm. all all of that. Um, and there is also a concept called outbreeding depression, which is kind of like the opposite of hybrid vigor, where you bring different, um, you know, 
plants of the same species that are genetically quite different from each other, you, you bring them together and you're going to res- result in crosses that are actually less vigorous and less able to survive in the environment. So what we've done with Iowa oh. Ecotype Project is sort of bridged both in a way. So we're we're trying to maximize genetic diversity across mm-hmm. a zone in Iowa so we're not getting outside of that zone. Yeah. Um, so we, we're hoping to capture the, the, the local adaptations, maintain those relationships with other species, um, but also get um, some genetic diversity that could help, could help counter any inbreeding that is, is out there. So basically you're saying if I took uh, echinacea from uh, Missouri and from Minnesota and they cross-pollinated... Uh, mm-hmm. Instead of having a stronger plant, you would actually have a you would have plants that wouldn't handle potentially. This is theory. Thank you. Pa- thank you for saying potentially because I don't know for sure. Yeah, you you might have the the most wonderful echinacea in the world, or you might have the Frankenstein of echinaceas. I don't know. <laughs> oh, no. But um, yeah, you get some of those. Especially you're part of the, like the native Iowa native gardening uh, pages. Yeah, at all, I follow those. Where yeah. the, where they they show like lo- yellow cone flower and like some of the most wild. Uh, hybrid or deformed or you know weird stuff uh, pops up yeah yeah and yeah. i i look at some of those plants i was like what you know they like yeah. things that have petals going all the way up the stem mm-hmm. and stuff like that mm. find it fascinating yeah but. yeah um oh man where were we we were on genetic diversity okay yep. oh talking of genetic diversity i have something in my box good 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 okay so oh i have two things in my box actually i have i have a box Okay, you got a what box you in your box. What, what do you notice in the box? I don't see... That's definitely not Canada anemone. I see a viney thing. You see kind of a viney thing? Yeah, it's got these um, little... It looks little, like clovers, like three-leaf clovers, but attached by vines. Yeah, like little baby, little little um, uh, stemmy things with little plants that form where they touch the ground. Um, uh, have you ever picked strawberries that's the before? Most, oh, that's right. <laughs> I want to be your first grower of this. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Like, <laughs> I'm not saying Hoxie Nam seeds. I want to bring these home and figure Yay! out how to grow them. They, um, yeah, we we just we collected wild strawberries from Remnant Prairies last year. Um, and talk about a fun process. I just had to make sure that the crews who went out with me did not eat too many of them because yeah. they are delicious. So can you clip these? Yes. And just uh, if they've got some roots, yeah, you could. Yeah, are you? Are you? Wait. I'm watching your hands. <laughs> no. no, I'm not taking any. You could you could take one. It's fine. So that is um, really cool. The reason I brought out this germination box was not just to tout the fact that we're going to try to grow these, and we hope to have yeah. flowers and fruits next year. It's also to talk about their genetic diversity and 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 talk a bit about the gaps in the native seed market and things that uh, gaps that we hope to be able to fill. Gaps in the native seed market. Yes. What what do you mean by what is an example of a gap in the native seed market? Okay. Well, at the beginning, everything was a gap. Forbes were a gap. Yeah. So in yeah. 1988 or so, when they passed the Iowa roadside legislation, I mean, there you could get some grasses, and they were from like Nebraska and South Dakota and such. Yeah. Um, big loose them and the like. Um, but to get native Forbes, you had to go out and hand collect them yourself, and that's yeah. not a scalable thing. So um, uh, we. Well, we'll let the history be for now. But um, so identifying gaps in the native seed market and, and filling those was one of the goals and kind of um, 
having this publicly supported program, the, the, the plant materials program, go out, make some of those collections, figure out how to grow the stuff, provide, um, providing then both seed and information to growers. And what's, what's great now is that the native seed market in our state after 30 years, um, is so robust, and and um, I go to you guys often with questions yeah. about how do you grow this, you know, and you know how do you harvest it, how do you clean it. So um, so it's definitely a, a very much a two way yeah. exchange, and I feel yeah, like yeah. I'm a beneficiary of it many times. But um, but identifying those gaps. Oh, but has you, been a, I a meant to tell part. you, you helped us get our prairie spider ward in this year. First year we ever were able to harvest it. We always missed it. Awesome. Um, so you you cut it before it, it uh, um, popped all its its capsules. We let's see i feel like you said you looked for the first Mm -hmm. capsule to pop Mm -hmm. and then as soon as you saw one you just cut them all and uh that's what we did and it worked i mean it worked quote unquote we had one row and we got oh great 1.18 pounds i think oh not bad for the first uh, (laughs) oh yeah yeah. we were really happy it's just enough to grow more not enough to sell Pardon? Um, for the drought year, that was really good because yes. ours didn't even set seed this year. Ours, really? Yeah, uh, it flowered, and then I kept checking for seed. We and didn't it just have. Fizzled. We had a little bit of a dry year. We did. We we couldn't by no means say we had a drought. Okay. We it, last year, last summer, not this past one, but the one before, we could look to the north and the south, and it was raining, and it missed us. <laughs> this year, it was the opposite, and oh. and our fields did so much better. Our Indian grass was. So tall. Hmm. It, was, it was wonderful. I'm hoping but. mine's just taking the taking a year's break and yeah. it'll be better next year. But yeah, back to the strawberries. Um, so this was this was a gap that was pointed out to me by by roadside managers. Actually, I went to one of mm. um, the events that Christine manages, and so it's one another example of the synergy amongst the people that work for TPC. Yeah. Uh, so Christine invited me to talk to roadside managers at one of her uh, meetings. And I said, you know, what are things that you would like to see in your plantings that you don't now? What are the what are the species that are missing? And they said things like um, native cool season grasses, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, especially early spring flowers, because they have. Yeah. Um, an easier time communicating with landowners not to mow if there's something flowering that yeah. they can point to and they can say, "Look, those are wildflowers. We don't yeah. want to, you know, mow." Those, those are tough though because the the cheapest, most prominent one is Golden Alexander, mm-hmm. and that one looks. It looks like parsnip. I know it looks like if we you don't so know what you're looking for. I know, and wild parsnip's taller. It's different, but like yeah. the the tall, flat, yellow head yeah. of it, yeah. but. One that I have found very helpful when I'm explaining it to people is Ohio spiderwort because it comes in, it's it's brighter than chicory, yeah. it, you know, it's beautiful, it flowers every day like chicory, it doesn't yeah. last, I mean, chicory lasts for like 13 months out of the year, um, but... It's the, so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, that's one of those that always makes me happy at the beginning, yeah. beginning of the season. But yeah, the strawberries are one, they flower in May. Really? And then set fruit in June. So oh, um, that and, would be so cool to have roadsides filled with wildflower or wild strawberries. Wild strawberries, right? Yeah, you because know, oh. uh, if you go back in Iowa history very far, you'll you know you'll read stories of the little kids going out with their buckets to pick the wild strawberries. And oh yeah, a community having an ice cream social where they have um, you know wild strawberries with it. And I was telling you that story as well, and maybe we talked about it on the podcast. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, the gentleman who helped dad with his very first planning was a veterina- veterinarian. They called Doc. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fitzpatrick was his last name. And he's since passed. But his son 
brought over to our farm just to show. He was there at the Prairie Appreciation Days. Oh, yeah, yeah, I met him. Yep. Mm -hmm. He brought over uh, the the exact tractor that his dad used to help uh, my dad plant his first Indian grass. Oh. Failed planting. uh, (laughs) uh, Plant it too deep in the ground. (laughs) I understand failures. Uh, Believe me. I I shared one with you, but it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. I can think of many more. Sometimes when I feel like having a better status in people's eyes, I tell people that, yeah, dad planted his first prairie in 85, but uh, we we didn't like see any prairie to like 87 or 88. (laughs) (laughs) It took a few years of there. But um, so uh, Fitzpatrick brought over that uh, tractor, but he also sent us a like chapter in his family's history book, which is a cool thing to have from his, like his great grandpa or great, great grandpa moving here in like 1870 Mm -hmm. and how everyone uh, just ate so many wild strawberries by the riverbed. And, you know, just, I think that's so cool. You know, that's it, it. That reminds me. You know, how do you connect people to these plants and get them to, you know, to value and appreciate them? Yeah. And the plant communities that that support yeah. them. Um, and and part of it could be, you know, when we when we start returning these things to the landscape, um, giving people access to them so that they can experience them and experience yeah. them in more ways than simply walking through them or taking pictures of them. But if you could go out into a prairie and you could gather strawberries and you can taste that, you can have that, that connection of, you know, your body is being nourished by, mm-hmm. by this yeah. place. And I know this is starting to sound woo, yeah, yeah. but, um, or you could collect the mountain mint and you can dry that and you can have that in your tea. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's ways that we can start to, to really deeply connect to this, this, yeah. this place. And We've been thinking about candles, trying yes. to get different native prairie candles, see if that mm. would work at all, because then you've got it in your home. Get those right. essential oils. And things yeah. Like yeah. 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 yeah that's, exactly. that's neat. So the strawberries, back to those guys. Um, the, the reason I brought this box in is because this is a germination box. Um, it's got a date on the tag of, of uh, March 1st. So okay. um, that's when, when we seeded those after stratifying that seed. And um, What's special about well. a germination box? Oh, I just, a lot of times, um, just to save on greenhouse space, I'll start seeds in a, a small germination box. Like this one's what, um, what maybe um, six by eight inches. Um, and it's a real efficient way to um, start that seed there because um, when it, germinates in here then i can take those seedlings and put them in plugs and then every plug has a plant in it and i don't have to worry about like seeding a bunch of plugs and having gaps and yeah. it makes water have you seen how bob Wubin does his plugs have you been out to his i have farm? been out to his place so yeah. how he has those totes and then he yeah. just takes like eight inches by eight inches and gets like and 200 plants, plants. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. he's growing them in a little bit larger um pots i'm growing out plugs that are you know about basically as big around as my thumb yeah. that then yeah. we transplant out into our field so this all of the siblings of these these plants that are in this particular tray they're all from one prairie um and they already got transplanted into our plot and they're growing out in the ground yeah um I kept the trays because later on more seedlings emerge from that. So there are some of the the seeds that germinate right off the bat after you know period of stratification, and then there's other seeds that are just kind of sitting around in there. I don't know why those seeds were delayed in their germination. I yeah. mean, it could have been how deeply they were buried or something you know that's just uh, inconsequential. But there could be some genetic variation there in mm. their timing. And oh so yeah, I want to keep those. Um, and I'll probably overwinter them in the trays and then get those plants out into that field uh, next year. Because if there are genetic traits that are different here, I want those in the population. Because mm. you think about when you're seeding those things out, um, 
sometimes you really want those seeds that come up right away after they've gotten whatever dormancy breaking they need. Um, But there could be, you know, years when uh, it's better to just lay in the soil and wait. Mm. And so if, if, if plants vary in those kinds of traits, I want to keep that in the population. So it's a conscious decision to, um, to, to do some things that are maybe less efficient um, and can be kind of a pain in the neck actually. Oh, do I have time for more things in my box? Yes, but okay. first, I, I've got to ask uh, about the strawberries. How the heck do you get the seeds? Aren't they on the outside of, <laughs> of like a juicy wet straw? And wouldn't they get moldy if you like just stuck a strawberry in the ground? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, technically, if I put on my uber botanist hat now, technically the fruits are the little things that you see on the outside of that fleshy mm quote unquote berry. So the um they're they're Achines and they're little um hard fruits that are on the outside of that thing. Joaquins? Achines. A C H E N E. Okay, so you've got the The seed is inside the little Achene, which is stuck on the side of the, the yeah. fleshy receptacle. <laughs> but this fleshy is all, receptacle. Who cares? It is a strawberry, right? Yep, okay, yep. so it's it's effectively it's a fruit because it's it's a it's this this fleshy end of the plant that's that's attractive to animals who want to eat it and will disperse the seeds. Yeah. Now I'm not personally <laughs> dispersing these seeds to our plots, right? So um, I've got to figure out a way to get those things um, under control. So the way to do that is to put them with some water in a blender. Wow. And basically make wild strawberry daiquiri and then pass that through a sieve and then dry those seeds. It works pretty good. Wow. Really? So the blender doesn't hit kill the seeds? Mm Mm-mm. Man, that's fascinating. It may scarify them a little bit, which might actually, you know, accelerate germination a little huh. bit. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah. You know, uh, you can we also... can't get our wild strawberries to germinate. Have you tried daiquiris? <laughs> you tried putting them in a daiquiri? My wife and I are starting a drink shop, and we've been... Uh, she makes this killer strawberry drink. Oh, but so Hoxie and... Uh, that's and, what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Just and keep them I, clean as you're collecting them and, and yeah. you'd be okay. Some of the ones we harvested from the wild prairies, we, they, you know, full of sand and yeah. you know, animals love them too. So you just yeah. never know what's going to be no. on them. So we did not drink the the daiquiris that we made from them. You the didn't wash daiquiris. the strawberries first? No, we just... It, but it smelled so good. It was, <laughs> it was really intense. Well, what we're finding is... So we like, my wife makes this really good slushy drink. Mm-hmm. Um, I realize we've never made it in the fall. Right now we're trying to test all the drinks oh, before yeah. we open. Yeah. We've never made it in the fall. Strawberries suck in the fall. <laughs> so when right. we're making this drink and it's like sour and we're like, well, what is going on? Then, you know, make things seasonal. Oh yeah. So, It'll um, have to be seasonal. Yeah. But yeah. So these strawberries, uh, like the first, first week of that's June That's what I'm so. saying. Native strawberry slushies. Man, that's what I want with a little intense. agave, just agave strawberries and ice. That's yeah. all. Or maple, you know, cause oh, that would yeah. be a local product. Too. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. true. So Sorry. Anyway, keep going. So, yeah. Um, uh, that, that, that diversity is so wonderful, um, but it can be a pain. Mm-hmm. So I've got, another little prop here okay sorry about the scratchy box noises but no that's all right what, so what are what are these two things the one on the left almost looks like a lobelia but i don't think it is yeah yeah you should look at it more closely because I, I i think you know what this is are you sure i'm i'm pretty sure um goldenrod yeah which one do you know definitely not stiff i think this is uh so there's stiff showy gray <laughs> and canada and this one has the really like um conical how tall is this normally um i don't know right now plots right now it's it's about two, foot tall. two to three feet tall which is it's the first year for those plots so they're a little bit oh. on the short side and it's drought years so. i'm going showy yep 
Nice. Yeah. Uh, but what do you notice about those? I mean, they almost look like two different things, right? Yes. I, that, I did notice that. One is flowering and yellow, and the other one is losing its seeds. I'll just take these home. <laughs> it's already got the fuzzies on them. Yeah. So what, what's going on here? Okay. So um, these are both out of one plot. Um and this is a um, this is zone one in northern Iowa um, showy goldenrod plot that we started this year from from old seed. We needed mm-hmm. to refresh the seed in our seed bank, and so we took first generation seed and grew it out to get this the second generation plot. Um, but um, what I'm illustrating here is just that there's genetic variation that's in a lot of different traits in those plants, but one of the traits is just the timing um, of flowering and maturation of that seed. Um, from the standpoint of someone who's creating habitat, that variation is wonderful because, yeah. you know, your bees have yeah. this fantastic late season nectar and pollen source um, over a wide period of time. Yeah. As a native seed producer, it is a pain yeah. because you can't just pick one moment and go through there and, and you know, swath that stuff. And Yeah. Um, well, we do with stiff goldenrod we do and our germs always horrible we always have like a 98 percent purity because mm-hmm. stiff goldenrod's so thick n- there's mm-hmm. not a lot of weeds that yeah. hang out in there with yeah. it but then our our germ last year was like 62 percent, which mm-hmm. you know most other species is closer to like 80 mm-hmm. uh, well forbs is closer to 80 and then grasses is closer to like 95 or something but yeah yeah it so and that's the route we've picked. Instead mm-hmm. of hand collecting it, we've just decided we're just going to have a bad germ, you know? And yeah, yeah. Pick kind ahead. of the the middle of the road. Yep. And and then and then harvest it. And I think by I think you guys tend to use swath stuff and then uh, let it dry on the plant. Let it kind of do the little after. Not ripening. this one. Not, Not this one. one. I you don't actually think we do. um, just combine it directly. We chop it. Mm-hmm. And then we let it dry in a wagon. Okay, I see. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I've been kind of imitating that a little bit. I've been, you know, cutting stuff and, and drying it on a tarp, um, yeah. giving it a little bit of chance to do some some ripening off the off the field. Because if you let it ripen in the field, you know what happens. Oh, it just yeah. blows away. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. So um, to, to keep that genetic diversity in that population, um, what we do is we'll, we'll go through and we'll hand harvest the early maturing ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, then we may wait um, and harvest the the bulk of them later. But we try to at least get those early maturing ones and maybe leave, if we notice that there's a patch where there's some really late ones, leave those and, and yeah. harvest them later. We do that with Leatris. We, Good, okay. We harvest, uh, or we, we hand harvest the early stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, not Leatris uh, spicata, uh, prairie blazing star. Oh, the Pycnostachia? Pycnostachia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What's mm-hmm. spicata? Spicata is another one that's um, not, it's... it's uh, I believe it's somewhat east of here that that it has okay. its right. It's uh, yeah. So Pycnostachia, we we don't do it with that one just because I think the monetary value isn't worth mm. us being out there. We'll just take whatever germ we can get. Mm. Um, but the uh, the rough and the not meadow. meadow no, yeah. there's another one um, that. Do you we, do cylindrical? We don't. There's one we don't do anymore. We mm. stopped right when I got it. That's why okay. I can't remember the name. But. Um, we would go in early. We'd handpick all the early ones. Mm-hmm. Then we chop. But something we find that if when we swath it is ones that still aren't anywhere close to being ripe, they won't cut easily. Oh. So they end up getting left in the field. So we can actually run a combine through. And then um, Kent and another gentleman who's amazing, Clayton. I uh-huh. hope you get a chance to meet okay, him sometime. Yeah. Uh, we're working out in the field. And they spent half a morning just gleaning out there, cutting the ones that hadn't uh, 
that weren't ready when that's the combine really cool. came over. And yep. So that practice, it's it's helping you with your bottom line and yep. getting you better better germ also, mm-hmm. which also influences your bottom line. Yep. Um, but it's also retaining some of those genetics in the population. Yeah. So there's concern sometimes, and you should be aware of this, I suppose, that out kind of in the research community and restoration, there's concern that by growing these plants in cultivation that we're narrowing the gene pool. And you can think about like harvest yeah. timing is one of those really crucial points where we yeah. could narrow the gene pool really easily just by just yeah. by the day that we pick to things in oh yeah so it, it is a changing that up a little bit or getting those stragglers is really important it is a tough thing especially with milkweed oh. because milkweed has it, it blooms for like six <laughs> years you know or you know the seeds are ready and, and the moment those pods open up oh, here yeah. yeah which uh common milkweed isn't as bad um world milkweed we can har we can hand or um we can combine. Okay. Uh, butterfly weed, forget about it. Yeah, butterfly weed just, it's, I, it's either ready or it's not. You want to know so, a secret? What? I'm letting all the people in. I think Kent would kill me for saying this. I have begged dad to get rid of our butterfly weed field because because uh, you know what there is a plethora of, of butterfly weed? Hand pickers. And we, we owe it when we get stuff from hand pickers, we know what county we're getting it from. Oh. Um, and I actually think it's higher quality. Mm. The test comes back better. Mm-hmm. Um, and our field sucks. Yeah, <laughs> it's it. hard to grow in um, in monoculture, I find. It's, it's oh, one of yeah. those species that you, you end up with all kinds of pest problems that wouldn't mm-hmm. be there. Um, out in a stand where it's separated yeah. by by diverse other native vegetation. Yeah. But dad loves it. Yeah. He absolutely loves it. It's one that there's so. consistent demand for. Absolutely. I mean, well, it's beautiful. It's it's beautiful. It's, it's a orange. monarch resource. It's a it's a butterfly and, and bee resource. Nothing and, else out there that's orange. And I mean, it not blooms nothing, earlyish but, in the oh, season. Yeah. It's orange. Yeah. It's you know, it's a it's a fantastic plant. Yeah. Um, we love it. We yeah. love it. We love it. Mm-hmm. I hate our field i and and, and the only reason i would even consider doing that is because there are so many people who handpick it that Mm. are ready ready to you know i mean we don't grow that much you know Mm. grow 10 to 20 pounds every year Mm -hmm. well we can get 100 from handpickers every year we have to basically have a list in order of like hey we've worked with them the longest we'll take their stuff first and yeah um or you know this is a county we want to take it from as opposed Mm -hmm. to those other counties what do you think of us Obviously, we're not going to do like get something from Missouri and something from Wisconsin and put it, but I'll take like six counties in Iowa. Mm-hmm. I'll actually mix it all together and then send it off for a test. Do you see an issue with that if it's hand collected? Because what I I want to get different sources, like you were mm-hmm. saying, do you, am I doing that correctly? <laughs> correctly is an interesting word to use for that. Yeah. Um, um, are you doing something that is defensible um, biologically? Is that kind of what you're... Or ecologically, what do you uh, mean defensible? It, it just something where you have a justification for doing it. So you think mm. um, that uh, by mixing those, you're able to. Well, I start doing it based off of the Iowa Ecotype Project. Yeah. Okay. So right. getting different sources, obviously mm-hmm. not too far away. Right. But I can get several counties instead of getting one county. Yeah. I get these several counties. Yeah. Um, and your product is going out into also several counties around Iowa. Yes. Okay. Yep. Uh, you know, and I think I think that's that's a very defensible okay. um, methodology. I mean, if you were getting stuff from Pennsylvania and Texas, I yeah, would, yeah, or Kansas, I would I would question that. But yeah. you know, if you're getting multiple counties in Iowa, that's basically what I do. Sometimes we know? we get seed in, we'll order seed, and 
usually I ask for the test when we're ordering from other companies, but there's been a few times I forget the test and usually it's whatever it's from. We get the test back or we, we get the seed and it's from Minnesota or from Iowa or from, uh, maybe Missouri, uh, which are like the three big ones. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while I get one and it says Midwest and I'm like, Oh yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's not information. That's not helpful. Come on people. You can do better than that. But, uh, yeah, it's a hard Hard balance. What what else you got okay, in your I got, box? I got um, uh, two more things, and and this um, hopefully this will be quick. Um, I think you may have seen this when you did the tour when the roadside conference was here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was like my test, one of my test plants. I I tried this out. Oh, is this the hemi parasite? This is the hemi parasite. So uh, we probably should should explain if there are yes. people out there. Um, hemi just means half, so it's a half parasitic plant, or well, I mean that's that's an estimate, right? It's a partially parasitic plant. Um, this is called swamp lousewort, and you're getting kind of the sound effect. Yeah. yeah, it's fun. Yeah, um, it's got these little uh, seed capsules that are fairly dry and they're open right now. Um, and you can kind of hear that seed rattling around in there. Uh, but we're interested in these hemiparasites because they tap into other plants and take some of the resources from them. Um, and so there's a potential that they could influence the competitive relationships among plants in a, in a, in a prairie as well as in a planting um, so we're, uh, we'd like to fill that gap in, um, the, the restoration species pool. Now these are, I think they're things that are probably available, um, from pickers, from people who are out hand collecting them from remnants, but we'd Hardly. like, it's, I okay. mean, it's hard to okay. find hand pickers that, well. that do well. I would say this, we're newer in the handpicking buying game. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you handpick and you want to sell to us, give us a call. <laughs> I don't make any promises, but I, I, I am straightforward with you and I'll talk price if you want, but you know, a lot of them are already selling to Prairie Moon or something sure. like that. Yeah. Um, so people have been doing it a long time that would even know what a hemiparasite is. Mm-hmm. They, uh, mm-hmm. um, they're established and they're selling somewhere sure. else. But it's hard to find. We've looked around for hemiparasites at a price viable for starting just a single row to practice with yeah. different things. But I'd much rather just watch you and see what's successful as you're right. working on it. Yeah. So that's what we're doing with this uh, this group of species is um, uh, I started out with a swamp louse wart. I, um, one of my failures, uh, which I didn't mention at the beginning, was that I could not um, get good germination of um, wood betony, which is Pedicularis canadensis, this year. I got a few... Is that a hemiparasite? It's another hemiparasite. That's like the the holy grail because it's also an early flowering thing that oh. is pollinated by big-bodied bumblebees. So it's like the bumblebee queen food early in the season. Yeah. And it's a you know more of a prairie plant rather than a wetland plant. The the swamp louse where it likes those wet prairies and um, sedge meadows and fens and Sometimes stuff. Sometimes when uh, I do something annoying, Kent calls me a bastard toeflex. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> Commandra umbelata. It's also a fantastic plant. It's a uh, another one of those hemiparasites. Don't get me started on that one. That's a that's going to be a harder one. But um, the swamp louse wart we grew in plugs in the greenhouse um, with a sedge host. We tried two different sedges as as hosts, and so far one of them is doing better than the other. Which two did you try? Um, we tried uh, two of our wet sedges that we've grown here before: um, okay. porcupine sedge or Carex hystracina mm-hmm. and beb sedge or Carex bebii. Bebii, yeah, we yeah. we grow bebii, which is like a very weird one because. It will like do really well and then for two years not do well and it doesn't seem to depend on the rain and then it will do really well. And we have have three – we do a bunch of different sedges, but we have three that we produce in any sort of bulk. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Bignellii or prairie sedge or Bignell sedge, Um, Bebii or Beb sedge, and can't remember this one, uh, Blunt Broom sedge. 
which oh yeah um not broom sedge it's different blood oh. broom sedge um not let's see okay I, anyway scoparia I, scoparia is not not that, not one. that one yep okay and uh and it's like they take turns deciding that they're going to produce a lot of seed <laughs> it's 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 crazy how like it it'll, basically we can count on one of them having a bumper year and the other two just and all the fields are right next to each other so yeah, that's but, wild. If you if you uh, figure that out, but I'll, what you're saying is we should be throwing bastard toe flax seeds out in those fields. Just um, no, not bastard toad flax. I uh, is that one wet? That one's more of a you know music to dry music. I find it in a lot of remnant prairies. Hmm. Well, the, uh, so but, our fields are actually they're dry. We don't. Yeah, but I I, I don't see it in association with the sedges so much as with uh, the grasses. Oh, okay, um, but what kind know. of grass could you even grow that should like prairie drop seeds? Could we know. put them in the middle of those? You know what I really love to do oldest? is I'd go into, um, there's the the flora of the Chicago region. Have you seen that? Mm-mm. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. So it's like a, a flora is like, um, we talked about herbaria being the libraries of, of, of plants. A flora is like a dictionary of plants. And um, and this one is is particularly special, this flora of the Chicago region, in that they include a lot of ecological information that isn't always present. So a, a flora always has like a definition of that plant. It's a, a detailed description of what makes it that, and it'll have a key that helps it separate from hmm. others. But this flora of the Chicago region also has ecological information like in this particular habitat we see this in association with these other species oh wow um, and uh, before i'd make any recommendation on where you'd grow commandra umbelata i'd look at things like that like what's it associated with and then i'd look into the literature and see what um, the scientific literature and see what other people have have studied and determined it to you know um use as hosts hmm. so that's that's what i would do so um the uh, Pedicularis lanceolata, the swamp louse wart here, has a fairly broad host range. Um, and I just, I happen to see it out in the field in association with sedges. So I picked some always... sedges that I know we can grow. So that was, that was sort of a, the both a marriage of biology and convenience and picking those species. Is it always sedges and grasses? You don't see them in like the middle of a Rubecchia herda or? Um, I believe they can also form their, their connections to the roots of forbs as well. Um, but just for, for convenience sake and growing it in a plot, I chose to, I know that it, they'll connect to a graminoid. So yeah. I chose a sedge cause, um, it would do well in our irrigated plots. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. They're, so, they're, yeah. they're fascinating. It has, it's been something we've actually discussed and said, Hey, do we want to strongly pivot and work on these absurdly hard things to grow? Um, I don't think this one's absurdly hard anymore. You really? I really don't. I mean, give me let let me figure out like what the yield is next year. I mean, this yeah. year some plants are blooming, some aren't, and um, and see if those differences between those um, it, those host plants uh, still persist over time. But you know, uh, this is a se- you know like a second year plant, and it looks almost like a plant that's growing out in um, in in nature yeah. where I see them out. And I there. wonder if they wouldn't last longer the hemiparasites than normal forbs because of their. Um, their deep integration with uh, uh, grass. Maybe I don't know, but it'll be it'll be interesting to see, and I, I'll, I'll keep you posted. But more and more, I, I really like you know I like what John Judson is doing, mm-hmm. um, where he has a lot of the species growing together. Carl Kurtz does the, yeah. the same. They thing. They basically grow them in 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 sort of their own reconstructed prairies yeah. for, for seed yeah. production. Um, the, the Iowa DNR does similar stuff too. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think Polk County might be trying to do it, but mm-hmm. but it is it's difficult because then like you can't handpick black-eyed susan the, right. because it's so cheap yep. you you'd have to charge 75 dollars, and it costs 
18 right now or something yeah. like so that. So the you thing just, that makes sense out there is, you know, harvest it as a mix and, yeah. and sell it as kind of a ready-made yeah. mix that you can spike with other species. But, but it's then, harder tough. to, yeah. yeah, to come up with like a, um, you don't, it's harder to know exactly what you're putting in the ground with, with that. Oh yeah, um, it can be very successful, and I'm not arguing against it. I, I think it's a it's a really interesting and neat approach. And I think um, as far as what I've seen from growing prairie plants in monoculture, I would, um, you know, I think there's ways to do it. I but, but I mean I really, I really like. I think that that polyculture approach is really attractive. My favorite field, besides maybe little blue stem, which uh is not an ideal plant to like grow and harvest it's pretty tough because you actually it only lasts like two or three years but uh in terms of seed production but so but i love the way it looks if i had a monoculture if i had to have a monoculture in my house it would for sure be a little blue stem but my favorite field is rough drop seed the reason is its seed is so different size than anything else you don't have to stress about making sure nothing else is in that field Mm -hmm. so our rough drop seed field it's kind of smooth yeah yeah yeah. flows really well through the equipment yeah yeah. well and it feels nice (laughs) the we actually have a heck of a time cutting it so we cut it first and then we come back and combine it Mm -hmm. um it like it's caught in the sickles and it oh, doesn't want to just so tough. Those yeah. wiry tough stems, but in the field one, it's not that tall. So it's like nice to like wade through, yeah. almost, you know, like a, the like a knee high. It is just, it is gorgeous. wonderful. And we've got all sorts of milkweeds. We've yeah. got big blue stem, little blue stem, cytotsgrama, Indian grass, a little bit of switchgrass and switchgrass would be the closest. But even then the seeds are the rough drops seed seeds are so much smaller. Mm-hmm. We don't have to worry about, the only reason we're getting rid of any of those other species is for real estate space, you know, mm-hmm. so we can make sure. It, mm-hmm. But uh, I love that because it, it's it's all growing together. I think it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have heavily thought about like, okay, how can we grow species together? Something that works is round-headed bush clover in a big blue stem field mm-hmm. that that is weak. Like a, a weak big blue stem You field. told me that a couple years ago. Yeah. And so when I started growing out round-headed bush clover again um, – I planted the plugs into a week old um, Indian grass field. And oh. it's doing great. Good. Uh, um, first year, the seed yields were pretty low. I haven't harvested it yet this yeah. year, but I was just checking on it. And it, it looks nice. Those plants are healthy. Yeah. Um, they, they all flowered. It's, um, I think, uh, I think that's great. Yeah. And I also see with those older grass fields that um, uh, they weaken over time and then they get yeah. invaded by forbs and they start to look more prairie-like over time. Yeah, yeah. They're kind of yeah. cool. And yeah. because... They, uh, because they were grass heavy at first, you were, you're able to do like heavy weed management. Yeah. So there's not that much weeds, right. you know, that, yeah. that grow in those kinds of fields. Yeah, we really like it. Oh, man. I, you got anything else? I do. We're, have, we're getting close. Okay. 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 I have one other thing and it's, it's not a plant. It is not a plant. No. What is it? Is it a hat? No. No. What is this? It's a name tag from a national meeting that was held in Washington, D.C. area oh, back yeah. in March. So um, I got to go to the um, National Native Seed Conference mm-hmm. and uh, meet with um, uh, you know s- several hundred other people who were as geeky about seeds as I yeah, am, if yeah, not yeah. more so. Wow. Way more so. Um, and what was intriguing there is just uh, finding out just how... Um, how different the native seed needs are are in um, different parts of the country, yeah. and you know the the challenges that they face with um, like massive wildflowers. Uh, <laughs> 
best um, Freudian slip ever. Massive wildflowers out west. Yeah, the yeah. massive yep. wildfires. wildfires. Yeah, yeah. And replanting after those, you know, producing these incredible spikes of demand for native seed and oh, um, yeah. their native seed market struggling we, to fill that. Um, I will put, and I know it's very different, I will put short, mixed, and tall grass prairie in a similar category. Is that the biggest geographic region in terms of native seed needs uh in the united states um yeah what would you it would be uh I don't different even know. ecosystems be yeah other than that even like um um you know your sagebrush dominated landscapes out and yeah you know great i guess yeah that's stuff. a huge area the sagebrush uh mm-hmm. that might be mm-hmm. and the you know the 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 coniferous forests and whatever their understory is I, I know very little about those ecosystems mm-hmm. yeah. but i do know that their um their native seed market is is challenged by yeah. the the large scale of the seed need and um their uh kind of the limits on their yeah. their their ability to produce those needs something i'm keeping a low-key eye on is the uh, american uh, chestnut oh, I, like, yeah. I, I like have high hopes that right. it'll come back because yeah. it's so yeah it's so endangered but yeah okay so I you mean, were there so what, there. what happened what'd you learn um uh so yeah i was learning about these these other places i was learning about you know just how big an issue climate change is on people's minds and as they're talking about seed sourcing and so i i, I talked a little bit about that and how i lean toward let's put diversity out there and let it kind of sort itself out hmm. at this point um but i uh as more information comes in i might change my mind I yeah, mean, you know that's. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, do you feel like it was a productive time? It was a uh, productive time. One of the things that surprised me, I guess, you know, I'd heard that we have a pretty robust uh, native seed market in in the Midwest. I'd read that too. You know, had some statistics on just how many how many species out of the native flora of our region are in some yeah. form of production, and I think it's it's over. What is it like forty percent of all the native yeah. species are are yeah, produced Justin, by at least one? Justin, I think, was saying that that. Of any native restoration place in the world, the Midwest has oh, yeah. the best, I think yeah. is what he said. And I think, you know, it kind of goes back to people were asking us, like, how did you get what you have? You know, like, we want some of that, too. And um, and so we got to speak about the native seed system and, and had a poster on it about the native seed system here in Iowa and how that reflects what's going on in the Midwest. Yeah. And, um, and it kind of goes back to some public investment in... Um, and both developing the plant materials, so I've described what I do in my program and mm-hmm. how that um, yeah. you can learn more about how that came to be elsewhere. But um, but also you mentioned that when the roadside program has a bid for seed, um, they have a preference for Iowa source seed, mm-hmm. and they have a diverse mix that their diverse set of species that they're asking for. Yeah, and it's that demand that kind of kickstarted. Um, the diversification of the native seed industry in um, in this 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 region is having public entities or agencies that that said we want stuff that is adapted to our region and we want a diversity of things to choose from and we will put money behind that. Um, so you've got public investment in in materials development. You've got public investment in paying a little bit extra to get the kinds of seed that will be ecologically beneficial. Yeah. yeah, Um, yeah. And between those two things and an industry that has had innovative people in it who've been MacGyvering to find (laughs) solutions to some of the challenges to producing these things. Because I I, I know your dad says MacGyvering. That's what he's doing. Um, 
So we've got this, this again, it's like a synergy um, between that public investment and then the private um, innovation that has led us to this point where we've got a really robust um, native seed system. Yeah. And then that, you know, starting out here in Iowa with our um, DOT um, demand and other states that may have been different agencies or entities that, that produce that demand, we have this diversity. And so as CRP, the Conservation Reserve Program, has matured, they've been able to up their diversity over time yeah. because it's available. Yeah. And so now they dominate the demand um, kind of side of that thing. But that the, that system built up over time and is able to sustain that. And yeah. it's, it's had a transformational effect um, on those parts of our landscape that we've been able to transform. Yeah. That is a really, that was really cool. I Because Southern Iowa and Northern Missouri match, there's one other place in the United States that matches like uh, CRP uh, per acre or how much CRP there is per per county or something mm-hmm. like that. There's uh, it, it, the highest. Um, so y- you're helping with the demand. But I would add, not take away from anything you said, I would mm-hmm. also add that Iowa and um, closely surrounding states swung the hardest, the fastest in mm-hmm. terms of ecolog- ecological change. Iowa is the most terraformed place on earth yeah. of its size. Yeah. And the, so, the most altered state is one, yeah, one, yeah. Uh, the headline that I saw a few years ago. And uh, it's so we swung so quickly to one side that we got to a point where we're like, we should start looking the other way. You know, we should start yeah. swimming back. And I think, uh, I but, mean, there were some early people who were, who were looking at that. Um, oh and, yeah. I mean, the, you know, Ada Hayden, for instance, who was like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we ought not yeah. get rid of the rest of this. Maybe there's stuff that we need to preserve. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is fascinating. I even think of like, um, Oh, can you think of anyone who was doing it before Carl, Carl Kurtz or Ozenbaugh? Growing native seed, yeah, in the in in Iowa, because I I couldn't think of any, but I'm sure there were some that probably passed away by now. That's possible. I mean, that would be a great question to ask Daryl Smith. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, right. I'm I'm new to the this game. Um, yeah, uh, compared to him for sure. But um, but they were in it pretty early. Like mm-hmm. I think Ozenbaugh was growing big blue stem in like '78 or something like that, and that was um, but back then. He said he would sell fields and fields full of switchgrass. Mm. Uh, is kind of was a big thing he would do, and and mm-hmm. he middlemaned brome and stuff yeah. like that for the set aside program. But right. but people who they saw decades and decades ahead of mm-hmm. what um, what they were doing, and then um, there were several people who jumped in who had the resources to uh, um, to systemize it, uh, make it more economic for people to have seed. Right. You know that. Um, that was pretty cool. And something that I, I feel mixed about because I, on one hand, I, I kind of like it. On the other hand, I kind of don't, mm-hmm. uh, out of the West, there's these big public lands that people get, um, rights to harvest. Yeah. Um, and so they'll harvest like huge fields of canned wild rye. Right. And then they'll, and then, uh, they'll ship it here to Iowa for like a nickel. Um, and so we've got all sorts of like, basically no Iowa canned wild rye. Alan Dan grows a little and we grow a little. Mm-hmm. And both of us don't grow that much because we don't like it. Um, and if we can only get a nickel for it because there's stuff coming right. from way out there. But then on the other side, I kind of like it because that's a good use of a re- of a public resource, you know, just mm. uh, managing. Now, I would love it if it stayed further west, you know, stayed closer to where it was from. But uh, um, I do like the idea of, you know, 
not, and I don't know, maybe not harvesting it every single year, but <laughs> I wonder if there'd be a benefit to like every third year being able to go and harvest those major, um, major areas, uh, mm-hmm. public areas. But yeah. Yeah. I think that is one of the differences with that Western seed market is that there's more, more wild harvest that goes mm-hmm. on because they have more, um, you know, still intact wild lands. Yeah. Yeah. And they've got BLM. Not as much and... of an option here. But, you know, some of the, um, the wild collection, um, uh, happens because people uh, will lease uh, land for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. The, and and uh, even even here in the state of Iowa. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That's. But then leasing land in the West is very different than renting yeah, it here right. in Iowa in yeah, terms of yeah, price. Right. You know, where someone bid on uh, an auction on a uh, three years, four hundred twenty five dollars an acre, and it wasn't flat ground. Mm-hmm. Um, it's crazy, Cra- mm-hmm. you know, crazy prices. And, and I, yeah, I get it. I, mm-hmm. I understand that there's like a part to living that um, demands making money. But something I, yeah. No, nope, I won't go there. Not without Kent to help me out and dig me out of the <laughs> hole. I won't go there. Laura, we're so over time. What? Are we really? <laughs> yeah. Seriously? Yeah. How long like, have we been talking? An hour and 40 minutes officially Good on the podcast. Grief. That's wow. okay. No, it's fun. It seems like no time at all passed. Yeah, this was wonderful. Anything else in your box you want to make sure you get to? Uh, no, I just um, I just threw <laughs> some other stuff in there because uh, I, I found some um, hairy wild petunia uh, oh, really? uh, in between one of the rows. And uh, yeah. I threw it in my box because I wanted to catch the seed and it's explosive seed. And so it'll be fun to have it sitting in my office and every now and then I'll hear it pop. <laughs> Yep, yep, yep. yep. <laughs> if you've never done that with kids, another way to increase excitement about prairie, put some put some hairy wild petunia seed in a bag and, and give it to them to put in their room. Really? Oh, and they just like It'll a, pop and you'll hear it. That's fun. Yeah, that is a good idea. I've been, um, Danielle and I were, um, we just finished flipping our house and we're trying to get the landscape good or like done well around our house. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to find the spot for our prairie that oh. we're going to have. Um, and figure out what seeds we want to try and grow in there, you know, and we end up getting a list of like, of like 300. You want me to take the bro? I, I want I'm, you to take the little brome and I want you to grow it out and I want you to plant it there. Are there seeds on, in this? Yeah. They look like they all dropped. No, nope. There's seed in there. And the, uh, this comes from one of Justin's reconstructions. It's not, uh, a, uh. Oh, this from, isn't from the not, Iowa. Not a remnant ah, one. It's not from. That's okay. I didn't wade the Winnebago River to get this one. Yeah. Um, but, uh. It, there's a beautiful description of it in Minnesota Wildflowers website, which I go to all the time for mm-hmm. you know identification and information. Yeah. Um, and they have the ending uh, sentence is something like, "This is a beautiful little grass, and 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 plant some in your garden." Mm. It's it's, yeah. just, it's like it just straight up tells you just plant some of this. It's I am great. I am happy to plant this. I'd love to have it. I really want some of your strawberries. Well, when when will you have some? Um. We can we can work out a deal. Okay. So yeah, any yeah. <laughs> any um you know an Iowa native seed grower or somebody who's in the surrounding counties of a neighboring state who wants to produce that source identified Iowa source seed, yeah, they can contact me and my contact information's at the Tallgrass Prairie Center website. Awesome. Well, Laura, always a pleasure. A good friend of us <laughs> at the Prairie Farm and Hoxie Native Seeds. We really appreciate it. Friends, thank you so much for listening. Sorry for anything you didn't understand. If you have a question on something, uh, please email us at social 
at theprairiefarm.com or you can reach out to info at hoxynavesseeds.com and I will immediately forward your email to Laura because she will answer <laughs> so much better. Um, don't forget that we are presented by Hoxie Native Seeds and the reason that dad presents us and, and pays for these bills and pays me to do these interviews is because he really cares that the word gets out, that prairie is important to people because we believe that conservation happens one mind at a time.